Once again, we are in the fourth chapter of Revelation this evening. This is going to be our third time with this chapter, so let's get right to the text. We'll read the whole chapter once more, and the plan is, Lord willing, to be done with this chapter this evening. So after we read, we'll pray. The reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 1 in Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And therefore, before the throne, there was a, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And the throne, around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you once again and once more for this text and the descriptions that it gives to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand it. We know that many find it to be confusing and come to all sorts of conclusions, Lord, but we know that you have given us this word so that we might be comforted in the fact that you are sovereign and reigning. And so enlarge our capacity to know you this evening, and Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth, we ask for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. So we're working through this wonderful text, which gives us a glimpse of what it's like in heaven right now, of what it's like and what it has been like, since the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven in his glorified and exalted state nearly 2,000 years ago. And for a moment, let's consider what life was like for the seven churches that this letter was initially addressed to, those churches described in Revelation 2 and 3, the original audience, because their experience of the Christian life was a little bit different than ours. Uh, same faith, same Lord, same baptism, of course, but the culture they lived in was not as friendly to Christians as ours is today, or as friendly as it has been to Christians in other times and other places of the world as well. Not that I would technically say ours is very friendly to Christians today, but we're just we're making comparisons here. So in their culture compared to ours, even though ours isn't very friendly, theirs especially was not. So if you remember, in the world at the time of giving the giving of this revelation to John, the saints who actually received the letter were going through a lot of tribulation, a lot of difficulties and persecution. Christians in Ephesus had to deal with false prophets who ended up bringing persecution against the church. They had to bear up and endure patiently under their persecution. 
Those in Smyrna, Philadelphia, and Pergamum contended with Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah and likewise were then torturing and killing them for um, did not what they would say are for not denying the faith, for not denying trust in Jesus. The church of Thyatira was being led astray in worship, being convinced that certain sins were actually liberating them and teaching them more of grace. And the church in Laodicea was so worldly that a great portion of the congregation was self-deceived and in need of repentance, initial repentance. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus promised those who overcome and heed the warnings and instruction that he gives to them that they would um, one day sit upon his throne ruling over nations. And this is so important to God's people since, as we've seen, many of the Christians at that time were facing persecution and death from the satanically empowered, what the book of Revelation calls the beast, who sought to force Christians to confess that Caesar was Lord. And we'll get to more about the beast in coming chapters and what that represents. A number of people had lost their lives and their livelihood. Other Christians faced slander and persecution from those Jews who sought to stop these churches from preaching the gospel. And most of these congregations struggled with the question of how to remain faithful to Christ while living in the midst of a pagan culture, while living in the midst of a culture that didn't believe the same things that they believed. And yet, despite all this, the scene in heaven that we read about in chapter 4 and into chapter 5, it's not like a hospital emergency room after some tragic event that affects dozens of people. Neither God nor the saints or angels are running around frantically trying to figure things out. Everything in heaven is as it should be. God is on the throne. He's being worshipped by his creatures he's, that he has created, and even some of them that he has redeemed. He's sovereign, and the events that are transpiring on the earth at the time of the writing of this apocalypse, all the way through the last 2,000-ish years, as well as what's going on at this very moment, have not caused God to be stressed or anxious at all. His eternal decree is playing out, and he is sanctifying, meaning he is purifying and growing and maturing uh, his church. And even when things look like defeat from our angle and our perspective, the kingdom of God is still growing and pushing on. And so you can imagine how I think how comforting, really, a passage like this text is, chapter 4 and chapter 5 included, for those early churches. They were struggling with very serious and, and major issues. And then now we get this picture of what it's like in a heaven right now. And it's, there's calmness. There's peace going on. There's worship of God. God's not worried. He's not scared about what's going to happen tomorrow. Hard-pressed, hated, and persecuted, and repeatedly tempted to compromise with the spirit of the age, the Christians in these seven churches are promised that if they overcome by remaining faithful to the gospel, they'll receive all the blessings that Christ promised to them. And truth be told, it's comforting for us now as well, too, uh, that we have been given this door into heaven, this door standing open in heaven to see, not with our eyes, a, a physical description of what heaven looks like, as if John is giving us this description so we could paint a picture of it. Um, he's painting a picture of his words, with his words, that are symbolic of spiritual truths and realities. It's a description of the sovereign reign of Yahweh through symbolism throughout this whole church age. 
And the, and the first thing that we see is that God is sovereign over all creation. He is majestic. He is glorious. And there is nothing troubling him or catching him off God or, or by surprise at all. And so now notice in verse 4. This is how the revelation of the sovereign God continues. In verse 4, John now turns his focus away from the main central presence of God's glory. And he describes next the creatures that are, that are around the th- divine throne. The creatures, uh, his creations, in other words, that circle the throne. We read, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So at this point, all kinds of commentators have went in different directions regarding who these 24 elders are. And we're not going to get into all those weeds. But I would offer to you remember what I've said in previous sermons about this passage. And that is this, that, that the image that John is telling isn't a literal picture but it's symbolic of God's sovereign rule over all his creation and his steadfast peace through it all, even when it looks like things are out of control from the perspective of creation. But they aren't out of control. On the contrary, things are happening according to God's wisdom through the divine decree mitigated out through different means according to the counsel of his will, like we discussed last week. And so then, this is a symbolic message that we're given here about these 24 elders and sitting on these 24 thrones. The number of them, 24, certainly points us to the church in both Testaments, the chosen people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New. But again, not literally the 12 apostles and like the 12 patriarchs, the, the 12 heads of the tribes. Um, are, are, are there. This is symbolic imagery to tell us about all of the church. Given their function before the throne, which is reigning with Christ, uh, they have golden crowns, right? And then along with worship, verse 10 tells us how they're singing praise. And then a few places in chapter 5 also describe how they're worshiping as well. These, quote, elders are heavenly representatives of God's people in both the Old and New Testaments. They represent the saints before Christ came and the saints after Christ came. And so this blessed vision of God on the throne tells us the Lord God is being worshipped all throughout the ages, actually, by the true church all the time. The church lives a life of worship, doing whatever it does for the glory of God. And the imagery that we have here is telling us this, and it's also reaffirming that the saints are presently reigning even now with Christ. We understand this, I hope, that right now, if you are truly a Christian, then you are reigning with the Lord Jesus, and even that is an act of your worship towards God. I, I, I know that it doesn't feel like we are reigning with Christ experientially, often. It doesn't feel like that for us in the moment, but feelings don't rule truth. Truth is greater than our feelings. It exists, this, this reign that we sharing with Christ exists in the already not yet tension that we've talked about before. And so it's true because right now Christ is reigning and because of who he is and our union with him. But when we go to heaven, that not yet aspect of it will be ours as well too. And the Lord has been explaining these things to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Remember, these congregations are a type of the and are representative of the churches that exist 
in this whole time period um, after Christ's ascension until he comes back again in the future, which who knows exactly when that will be. And so he says in Revelation 2.10. He says in 2.10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2, 26 to 27. There he says, The one who conquers and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out the book of life, I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. Revelation 3.21 The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. So you see all that language of the white garments, the, the language of reigning and ruling. This is exactly what he's been telling those, those churches and their representative of churches all throughout this age. And then we get this glimpse into heaven, and lo and behold, here around the, here around the throne are these 24 thrones with the 24 elders on them representative of the people who overcame, those, those very saints, every saint that has lived and went on to heaven and is even alive right now and united to Christ through faith. While the earlier vision in Revelation 1 through 3 viewed the church in light of its earthly struggles, this vision that we have in chapters 4 and chapter 5 views the church in light of its heavenly identity, having already owning every blessing that Christ earned. And note, it's elders. Uh, the office synonymous in the New Testament with the office of pastor. Uh, G.K. Beale notes that if the elders are depicted here as indeed connected to the angels of the seven churches, if you remember um, from previous sermons in chapter 2 and even chapter 1 a little bit, in chapter 3, the angels represented the messengers, or in other words, the pastors of the church. And so, since the elders here are depicted and connected to the angels of the seven churches, this should remind us that the church on earth must find its true identity in heaven. Not here in the world, but in heaven, where God, the Father, and the Lamb, and the Spirit are worshipped in spirit and in truth. Therefore, what is done on earth in the churches must be conducted in light of what is even being done now in heaven. I've said this before, maybe you remember but our worship on the Lord's day when we come together and we gather is like a small taste of the glory that we'll know in heaven. That the church's worship service now should reflect that which is true of the ages to come. Granted, it's not as good and great because we still have to deal and contend with sin. And not everybody who's a part of the church really is truly a part of the church. But the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day is supposed to be like a foretaste of that heavenly joy and experience that we will know in the age to come. And that's why we are excited and filled with joy to gather with the saints on the Lord's Day. And it's our sin, it's our flesh that would cause us to look at the Lord's Day as a burden or not be excited because the saints gathered for worship is actually supposed to be a, a means to our gladness. Uh, they Think about these people that are described here. They're clothed in white. 
They've been washed and redeemed. They have crowns on their heads. They reign with Christ. Now the psalmist said, he said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And may that be our sentiment as well, even now. Further, that is what's on our bulletin. That is right. Further, a God's glory in heaven is accompanied by phenomena uh, associated with God's judgment and the presence found on earth throughout redemptive history. So we read according to John in verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. It's the same sort of language that is repeated at key moments in the grand narrative of the biblical drama that's expressed in the book of Revelation at multiple points. And so it's not an accidental then that they'll appear again in the book of Revelation all throughout um, the conclusion of these seven cycles of judgment that we'll read about in coming weeks or months. But anyways, Beale, again, he notes that the presence of lightning and thunder around the throne is especially important because it reminds God's people that God has not forgotten them in the midst of their earthly struggles. We here on the earth right now, we have to deal with what is described as maybe the lightning and thunder and rumblings and these, these peals of thunder. They're, they are apocalyptic, biblical language that represent judgment and trials and tribulations. Well, there's none of that actually happening in heaven. But the fact that it talks about it here is an encouragement to us, knowing that God is aware of the things that we're having to go through, the things that we're having to endure. I mean, as a matter of fact, you know, it's a, it's a it's no small miracle even. It's certainly the, the mercy of the Lord that our children's Sunday school classroom building didn't burn down this past week. Somebody obviously tried to do that with that garbage can that was put up there and then on fire. I mean, talk about, you know, peals of thunder and things like that. But God, you know, spared us from having to deal with the drama that would have caused. God is with us and he doesn't forsake us as his promises proclaim. The fact that we see these lightning and peals of thunder and rumblings here in this throne room tells us that God, again, is fully aware of all these things. But John, um, this is not all that John sees. Also before the throne, we read our seven torches of fire, seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We've seen this before. Once again, John is drawing upon the visions of Zechariah and Ezekiel, connecting lamps with the spirit of Yahweh and the spirit of Christ, uh, his presence with his church in Revelation chapter one. This clearly then is a reference to the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit, which we've already seen before in the apocalypse. And the Son is present here, as we will see soon enough, especially as we get into chapter 5. And so the Trinity is once again on display for us in these chapters. And there is more. Verse 6 says, Also before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Uh, this symbolic picture here reminds us, I think it's supposed to remind us, of Exodus 24, when Moses, Aaron, and Nahab, and Abihu went up to Mount Sinai and they met with God and they reported that under his feet were, as it were, under the glorious presence of God, they saw this pavement of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. Uh, they're seeing the same type of thing. This may also refer to the transparent pavement which surrounds the throne we talked about last week. And so you have this similar thing under the Father that you do also have under the Spirit as well. But one thing is sure, and we should note this, uh, the heavenly sea is tranquil. It's like glass. You know, have you ever seen water that's like glass before? Where it's so still 
like if you threw a rock into it, it would like just ruin it because it's like it's almost like a mirror because it's so perfectly still. Well, in scripture, the seas of earth are frequently the, the scene of storm and violence and judgment. The sea is also depicted in Revelation as the place of chaos and rebellion and from which the beast emerges to wage war upon the saints as we read in Revelation 11 and 13, 1. But in heaven, the sea is calm. It's like glass. It's clear as crystal. There's no storm or violence here, only calm and peace. We're, we're reminded even of how the spirit hovered over the, the face of the waters at creation even. This is the sovereign Lord over all of creation. And so not only does John see the 24 thrones, the 24 elders on the throne in this tranquil sea of glass, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, he sees other creatures who attend the one who sits upon the throne. Note the end of verse 6 through the beginning of verse 8. He says, around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes. In front and behind, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the, li and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day, we'll stop there. They're full of eyes all around and within. So again, similar creatures were seen by Ezekiel in his vision of God's throne, as he reports in the first chapter of his prophecy. And also a similar kind with six wings was also seen by Isaiah, who he tells us in chapter 6, he says, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, holy, 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 the whole, wor the whole world is full of his glory. Now, even their worship is very similar, right? Starting out, holy, holy, holy. And that sight that Isaiah saw was such an amazing sight that it overwhelmed him with a sense of his own sinfulness. And if you remember, and if you don't remember, you can listen to Steve's sermon from last Sunday evening. Uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, you should anyways. So remember, throughout the book of Revelation, numbers are primarily used symbolically. Like again, when we just talked about the 24 thrones and the 24 elders on the throne, that's not meaning literally 24 thrones from people they're symbolic of all the saints in the old and the new testament and even now then too with these four creatures we're not to think of four literal creatures the number four is used throughout the apocalypse as the number of the world four represents the number of the earth since the earth is said to have four corners north south east and west and four winds according to scripture Science as well affirms this kind of talk even. Uh, science would say that the earth has four systems, uh, or the earth as a system has four subsystems, land, living things, water, and air. And so the primary thing being conveyed here when John sees four living creatures is that they represent two things. Number one, the entire created order, everything. That's what they represent, everything. That's why they're depicted as looking like the earth's greatest creatures categorically. A man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. The, the concept of all creation worshiping is somewhat common in the Psalms even. Psalm 66.4, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Now again, 
the Bible is true and accurate, right? But I'm sure all of us in here could think of people that we know that isn't worshiping the Lord. And to think that a tree and a, a rock is worshiping is maybe weird to us because they don't have a will or a volition like we do, but they were made by God and they give God glory because simply they were made by him. So in that sense, they're worshiping him. Or think of Psalm 148. You could turn there if you like. So the, towards the very end of the fifth book of the Psalms. Psalm 148. 148. 148. It's only 14 verses long. We won't read all of them. <clears throat> but verse 1, being there. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. Have it, he gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire, hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens like old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his majesty is above the earth of heaven. For he raised up a horn for his people, praise for all the saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. So we did read the whole thing. But again, the, the point, right? These four creatures around the throne are speaking about that sort of thing, that all of creation is really in some sense worshiping God. And especially because, you know, God, even if, they, even if they're not doing it, even if they're not doing it um, out of their own will, and if they don't have a will, but God has made all things and he is sovereign over all things. And he is not ever in the place of being, um, of owing something of his creation or being at the subject of his creation. God is sovereign over worship and everything from the vantage of heaven is giving praise to God. G.K. Beale, again, he notes, in addition to representing creation, the cherubim or creatures also represent the creator. And such double symbolism should not be unexpected in apocalyptic visions. So that the multitude of eyes in the living beings signifies divine omniscience, that he sees all, that he knows all, and that they are God's agents. And so they are symbolic of God seeing all things and bringing judgment because nothing escapes his knowledge, nothing escapes his sight. And so the point is that the whole of creation is under the sovereign power of the creator and it's all giving God praise in different ways. And God has seen all of it and he's aware of all of it. God sees all, he's sovereign over creation. And then note how this last section unfolds from the end of verse 8 through 11, describing and testifying to the Lord God's sovereignty over worship, which has already been alluded to. So the creatures, day and night, they never cease to say. And so in other words, continually, right? They never, if they never cease, that means they're continually doing this. Remember, it's symbolic. But they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Again, recalling Isaiah's vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's a variation of the same phrase that's used in Christ Jesus in chapter 1 twice. There is a closeness between the Father and the Son, an inseparable union between them. We've talked about that before in this apocalypse already. But the phrase that was attributed to Jesus in chapter 1 is similarly, not similarly attributed to the Father now here in chapter 4. 
it was just a slight difference. The, the order of them has just changed a little bit. But the thing that to see is that there's no problem with that at all. The Father and the Son are one. They are of the same substance, the same essence, the same usia, as we talked about in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. And then verse 9, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, which, you know, verse 8 says they never cease day and night to do this, to, to worship. This is said to be continually happening. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Again, the church, the people of God who lived before Christ came to the earth to live under the law and redeem sinners who were under the law by sacrificing his holy and sinless life upon the cross in the place of wicked sinners and the ones who lived after him in that act that he did all worship God for who he is and then also for another reason that we'll see in chapter 5. And so look what it says they do. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I mean, what an amazing testimony to God's sovereign reign over all creation. He created all things, and by his will they exist, and they were created. And the church is said to cast their crowns down before the throne. Again, not a literal picture, right? Because how could this always be happening? Would they have to pick up their crown and put it back on their head when they're done and then put it down again? Or, or does it just ma magically or supernaturally reappear and then they put it down again? It, it's not literally happening. He's describing something that's symbolically expressing a truth. It's symbolic of the reality that the church understands that it's saved by grace. That we didn't do anything to earn our place there. That we are justified by faith in Christ alone. We don't earn or deserve these crowns. They're a gift from the true and only King. And so we're humbled in our worship of God Almighty. Now, there's a lot of application that we can say about this, but just two points. First, the Christian has the great joy of sharing in the anointing of Jesus the Christ as the anointed one. Therefore, every believer fulfills the prophetic, priestly, and kingly roles which our Savior has been anointed with. In a sense, we're all prophets called to proclaim God's word. We're all priests ordained to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And we're kings enthroned to war against the Lord's enemies and help expand his kingdom. Yet, we don't share in Christ's kingly office only in that sense, the only in the sense that we fight against the devil and his minions. Rather, we also reign with Jesus over creation. That's what that has been saying. This teaching of, that we are seeing tonight um, is explaining that. In one of the several... Um, quote, trustworthy sayings. It's found in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Those are those letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to these uh, protégés of his that he was training in the, in the faith. He outlines the incredible truth that those who persevere in the faith are truly united to Christ and will live and reign with him forever. And again, we, we may not think of ourselves as kings and queens who rule over all creation, or we may not feel like it, but this consequence of our redemption flows directly from the Lord who made us and saved us and what salvation accomplishes in repairing our fallen nature is the reality that we are in fact reigning with Christ. God made us to have dominion over creation, to rule it for his glory. We forfeited that ability in, in our vocation through Adam, but Christ has succeeded in reigning over creation as the last Adam. 
And in him, we are now once able to achieve our original purpose as righteous rulers of the world. Don't be confused by that. It's only because of Christ. And so we are, we humble, it's a humble reign that we have. Tonight's passage stresses the future aspect of our reign with the Lord, a reign that will involve uh, us judging even the angels, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. We should all be looking forward and eagerly to that final day, but let's not forget that even right now, we are reigning with our Savior in many ways. If you're a Christian tonight, sin no longer has dominion over you. Not for those who believe in Jesus, for we live in the grace of Christ. You, by the grace of Christ and the spirit that he's given to you, you can put sin to death. We have been adopted as God's children. And by the spirit, we can conquer sin now and grow in holiness. We're also free from the tyranny of the law over our guilty consciences. When the law is now a means for us to live in a way that glorifies God, it doesn't cause us to... To, to be um, put under a weight of, of guilt and shame. Uh, forgiven in Christ, we may fulfill the royal law of liberty in serving our creator as he intended his creation to do. Secondly, this heavenly scene should inform our understanding of worship. Any worship that is actually and truly Christian must be directed towards God, since he alone is worthy of worship. Any other conception of worship is idolatrous. What this means for us is simply this. God is the consumer or the audience of our worship. It is he who regulates worship, which is through the word and sacrament in the new covenant. Our worship, even now, is to be directed to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb who walks in our midst through the spirit that he gives. Therefore, when the whole congregation assembles for the purpose of worshiping God in heaven, not not so much am I thinking right now of like small groups or age-separated groups, which they can have their place, of course. But that's not what we see in the vision of chapter 4 and 5. So when we, when we gather on the Lord's Day to watch what goes on, or, or we don't gather on the Lord's Day to watch what goes on in the front of the church, or to just listen to the congregation on the stage, when we come on the Lord's Day, we come to add our voices to what is represented by those of the elders, the angels, the four living creatures, and the multitude of departed saints who worship God in heaven at this very moment and at every moment. That is why Christians from the very beginning have used a, a liturgy, a, a, an order of service that is easily replicable. And this was reemphasized in the Reformation after it had been lost. But generally speaking, a Protestant Christian church preaches the word, it sings the word, it prays the word, and it observes the sacraments or the ordinances. That's it. Nothing overly fancy to it. You might have different changes across different churches, but those are circumstances. The elements are praying the word, preaching the word, singing the word, and observing the sacraments. And this type of worship eliminates any so-called worship which is designed to entertain the congregation or which is designed to meet the felt needs of so-called seekers, people who are really sinful idolaters who need to be told how God wishes to worship. Therefore, you know, we don't do what we like in worship. We worship as God instructs us to worship, especially what we find in light of passages like this one. This is why worship is such a serious business, and why we must not view the gathering of or the assembly of the saints on the Lord's Day like some common cultural event or gathering where people just arrive when they want to, where people leave early to beat the crowd, where people get up and wander around to chat with friends. No, it's, 
it's not appropriate at that time during worship because God is our audience. And he is speaking to us through his preached word and through his sung word and his prayed word. And of course, you have to get up and go to the bathroom or deal with something that comes up. But, you know, that's not the main goal. The main goal is to come and to worship God. Pastor Riddlebarger says, The criterion for worship is not whether the pastor was funny, whether the band was great, or whether or not we received a, quote, blessing. The only acceptable criterion is whether or not God received the blessing of his people in accordance with his word. This is why you must give due preparation and due attention to what transpires in this place on the Lord's day. When we come here, we enter into God's presence, and the perspective is to be of heavenly things. And that's why I, in part, struggle with like youth ministries or, or youth groups even. At most churches, it's just shallow, man-centered preaching aimed to entertain and teach young people some morals. But there's also typically prayer and singing, hopefully no sacrament observance. But those things, the things I just mentioned, are 75% of what God calls us to do on the Lord's Day anyways, with the whole church gathered. Yet, our modern culture has almost invertedly created a sub-church within a church by having youth ministries that are so similar to the main Lord's Day service, at least in the form of them. Uh, To be honest, many modern churches rarely even go to the Lord's table. Sometimes four times a a year is is a lot in some congregations. And so in that sense, it really is like a a youth ministry or a youth group is often like a sub-church within a church. And so you even see them do things like having, you know, quote, Youth Sunday, because there really is two different groups. Now, that's not what we do here, obviously. Uh, we sing the same songs on Wednesday as we do on Sunday morning. We pray on Wednesday, not as long as we do on Sunday morning. I preach the same way that I would on Wednesday night as I would on a Sunday morning. But we still suffer from the problem of not having the whole church gathered. And yet, doing the things that the whole church gathered is supposed to do. Perhaps it would be just be better to have like a normal small group sort of a thing rather than a church service limited to only students. If we don't want to have a midweek service simply open to everyone, I don't know. One thing I do know is that we must take our worship serious. When we gather, it should be reverent. It should be serious. Even a glimpse of the throne room reminds us what John Calvin described as the greatest of Christian privileges, to enter into the presence of God and be numbered among the assembly of those who are allowed to worship the creator of the world and the redeemer of the saints. Let us never forget that God could have left each one of us in darkness and bondage and sin. We could have been born in a place where the gospel has never been preached before. And hopefully, you know, a missionary would come there. That's why we support HeartCry Missionary uh, Society and, and Trevor. The ability to come to worship the Lord is a privilege. It's, it should be a joy to us. Yet, because of God's plan of redemption and his graciousness and saving us, uh, we don't pre- perish under the glory of God. Instead, when we worship, especially this is so when the whole church gathers for worship, we are part of what's happening in Revelation 4 and 5. Do you see that? That's that's what the main thing I'm trying to get across right now is that when we gather to worship, especially when the whole congregation gathers, because that's that's really what the Bible commands, that we are part of what's happening and being described in Revelation 4 and 5. And we sing with them, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they are created and have their being. 
And once you have a glimpse of God's throne in heaven and realize that this is the end to which we have all been called, how can we not help but to fall before the throne and worship there, the one seated there and the lamb? Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you are worthy of worship and it is humbling to know that we go through so much of our day not even thinking about worshiping you. Yet, we know that in heaven, worship of you is constant. And we desire, Lord, to worship you at every moment as well. Even when we're not gathered with the church, we know that we can live lives of worship and do all things for your glory. And so we ask for grace that we may do that. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to understand the great privilege that we have of coming together with other saints to hear your word preached, to sing your word, to pray your word and to observe your sacraments at their appropriate time and place. Lord, may you be exalted always, and may you increase our love for you and our knowledge of you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So next, chat next, next week we'll be off, but we'll start chapter 5, which is still part of the throne room. But again, it's going to focus more on redemption and Jesus at that point. So any questions about chapter 4? We probably will come back and talk about it a little bit when we get to chapter 5 because, again, they're related. They're all intertwined. No questions? Cool.